Okay, welcome everybody. Today is Wednesday, the 24th of February, and today I am absolutely delighted to welcome our speaker, Larry Kay, to the 100 Pounder meetings. Larry, can you just confirm that you have signed the speaker release and are happy to be recorded? Yes, uh, I did, and I'm happy to be recorded. Thank well, you. Take it away, Larry. Okay, well, th thanks so much, Rita, for asking me. It's always a privilege. It's an honor to uh, to try to carry the message uh, to the best of my ability. We'll see how that how that goes um, this morning. But I'm, I'm Larry Kay. I'm uh, I identify as a recovered compulsive reader, not cured, but I am in a in a recovered state of being, and um, I'll speak to that a little bit. But um, let me get my uh... okay. Good. I didn't want to stare at myself. That's um, always a challenge, right, when I'm doing that. But in any case, so um, yes, I was, um, I came into Overeaters Anonymous uh, approximately 20 years ago. Um, I was at least 100 pounds heavier than I am today. I've been about the same, the same weight, the same size for, for a number of years now. Um, uh, but what I'll tell you is when I came to, I, one thing is I came to the rooms, I, I, I did not come to the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous to have a spiritual awakening. I can assure you that was not my desire. I, I thought it, it, you know, as a as a clinical psychologist, I'll tell you that when I came, it it seemed a lot like group therapy to me, which I was in favor of. I, I thought that was, uh, you know, that was certainly a, a beneficial thing. And when I walked in the rooms, um, again, I was um, I was much heavier, but also physically, but. Um, uh, I don't know how close I was to physical death. I mean, there's there's two two types of deaths. There's the last breath death, and um, I hope it's no newsflash to anyone. We're all going to experience that one at some point. Uh, but then there's the second type of death, and that was uh, the one that I felt, which was that I, I felt very much dead inside. Um, I was uh, a, a functioning compulsive overeater addict for a very long time, and um, and so when I arrived. Um, you know, I, it was just um, it was just another day. Um, you know, they I've heard I've heard that um, you know the doors of Overeaters Anonymous it should be like these uh, Dutch doors if, if anyone's familiar where it's, you can kind of close it. There's two halves to the door, and uh, Dutch doors. You know, you may, maybe just leave the bottom unlocked and open because we need to crawl in. I needed to crawl in. I needed. I didn't realize that I needed to be beaten into a state of reasonableness. Um, but, but I came in and, uh, and, uh, um, I, I, I really tried my very best to identify out. Uh, I didn't want to be, uh, one of you guys, whatever I conceived that you were. After all, I traveled miles and miles and miles away, uh, from my, my, uh, the, you know, the town in the Chicago area that I was from. I just seems seems to be someone's unmuted there. That's okay. There we go. Uh, but I traveled miles and miles away because after all, God forbid somebody that I knew, are you kidding me? Uh, don't you know that I, I was a very important man uh, in my mind anyway, in my, my selfishness, I was very important. And so God forbid anyone would see me uh, that would come in, you know, that would just, um, uh, I didn't know that I was sick as, uh, as sick as my secrets. I had many secrets. Um, but, um, but, but in coming, you know, eventually when, when I came, you know, one of the things that they asked me to do was as I began to learn more about first, what the, a 12 step way of life is, 
what this program of spiritual action is, what it isn't and what it is. One of the things that I did, perhaps you, if there's newcomers on the line or even someone that's been around for years is uh, at some point I was asked to kind of do in the process of step one, which is complete deflation, really, this powerlessness, the, the, the notion of unmanageability, I began to, to be asked to examine my, my eating history, you know, and the unmanageability history. And one of the first memories that I had when I began to put pen to paper uh, within the first step um, of, of, of acknowledging that I was indeed a compulsive reader, because I, I desperately did not want to be a compulsive reader. I wanted to eat, but not feel the effects, the emotional and the physical effects of the eating. Rest assured, I wanted, I came with my hands out and I wanted much. Um, but one of the things I, I, I recall, they said, you know, take a look at your earliest times. And the earliest time for me that I remember, I'll just share with you, was when I was two and a half years of age. Believe me, I actually have decades later, still to this very day, I can remember this. I suppose I'm not the only person on the line that would remember something. So I, I don't know if it'll trigger something for you, but um, it was a Saturday morning. I remember it as clear as day. I don't know how I had this memory, but it was my first memory. My mother kept, you know, the, the baby aspirin. I don't know if it's still candy flavored, orange, you know, that taste. But I knew enough that my mother uh, um, kept that sweet candy uh, up in a cabinet above the uh, ref uh, refrigerator, above the freezer, those little cabinets. And I was quite the climber, right? And so I, I climbed, I, I knew to do this. Um, you know, I, I knew there was shame in what I was doing. I, I don't, I just recall having that feeling. And I climbed up and I got that big bottle of baby aspirin down to the linoleum floor. And I proceeded to eat the entire bottle of baby aspirin. And I remember my mother coming into the, I have three other siblings. Um, she didn't leave me, you know, I, I wasn't neglected. It, it was just a momentary time that I was kind of um, doing this uh, stuff. And, and I, I ate, she, she came into the kitchen and she shrieked. I remember that. She screamed bloody murder and that's not my mom. Um, she saw the, this bottle of baby aspirin consumed and they rushed me to the hospital my father and my mother. I remember my mother uh, uh, holding me in her lap. I don't remember much beyond that. I'm here today. Obviously, I, I lived through that. They pumped my stomach. There was something about the sweet taste of that baby aspirin. There was something that it did for me that it didn't do for normal kids. Because rest assured, I didn't have a headache. And I wasn't hungry when I consumed that bottle of baby aspirin. Uh, what it was, was there was something that that sweet taste did for me that it didn't do for, for other children. That was my first recollection that uh, I was a compulsive eater. There would be many more as time went on that I would understand. My first job, I was 15. I worked at a, a day camp during the summer. That was like the primo job, you know, to work at the day camp. They probably, we, our parents should have paid paid them for allowing us to work there, but they probably paid me like $2 an hour or something like that back in the day. And, um, and my job as the junior counselor of the third grade boys was a very popular day camp was to, um, when, when the kids would bring their sack lunches, their bag lunches, we would put it in like a hamper, right? That was with a 
it was marked third grade boys, right? And there was many, many different groups. And I would, my job was to take that down to the shed, you know, where they kept all the, the, lunch, the lunches. And we'd go about our day and so forth. And the senior counselor, who was probably like a freshman in college, um, we would play. That's what we would do. We would play. There wasn't like big lesson plans or anything like that. I would sneak down to that shed. And you know, the, the, uh, the sweet, savory things, the dessert items that moms and dads would put in the lunches, I stole those. And I would, I would steal the, the salty, crunchy, savory, you know, chips and different things. And I would steal those. See, I wasn't a bad human being. I was a sick person. And there was something about those cravings when they would come upon me. And that those, those food substances, those I call them heroin substances, did something for me that it didn't do for the other junior and senior counselors of that day camp. You know, I wasn't a criminal. I wasn't, I, I, I was raised in a home. I felt loved, all those things. But I, those cravings came upon me and I would do all sorts of things. I would steal food, I would, and on and on it went, you know, and, um, and so through that exploration, you know, I would see all the unmanageability and all the times, maybe you can relate to some of them too, all the times that I would do. I, I was uh, in college now and I remember I had, I had uh, seven other roommates. We, had, we lived in a, in a home, this is undergrad. I went all the way in school, uh, but, but, but during undergrad, I had seven other roommates and we'd have our own little cabinet. We'd have community food, but we'd have our own cabinets, right? for different things that were our own. And one of my roommates, he had uh, Pop-Tarts. Do you remember Pop-Tarts, the little, uh, you know, and uh, they're, they're still around, right? Um, I, I still, for the life of me, I don't know how someone could eat a Pop-Tart. Who eats a Pop-Tart? I ate a box of Pop-Tarts or two boxes of Pop-Tarts, but, and so one of my friends, he must've been rich because, because he would get the, he would get the, 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 you know, the Kellogg Pop-Tarts, not the generic ones. He'd get the good stuff, right? And, uh, and I would steal those, all with the intent of replacing them, because they were very expensive on a, on a budget, right? And, uh, and I wouldn't sometimes, and I would lie about it when the truth would have served me better. I would steal food. And they, they must have put the sting operation on me because they, through process of elimination, because uh, everyone else was saying that they, they didn't, you know, eat those Pop-Tarts, but I knew that I did and I lied. And um, they must have figured it out. And uh, one day I was, I got back from my classes and I put my book bag down on my bed and I sat down and I, on my bed, he had smushed a whole box of blueberry Pop-Tarts all over my sheets and my, my pillowcase and all that. See, they knew, they knew he was hurt that I stole his things and he, he was angry about it. And I felt shame. I felt horrible shame about stealing food. I was to go on and steal other people's food too, even at an age when, you know, when, when, when the truth would have served me better. And so on and on it went and the unmanageability. Now I will tell you that I, I look pretty good on paper. I always did. You know, I, I, I'm educated. As I mentioned, I, I'll just mention to you, I'm a psychologist because not, not to impress you in any way, but to, to let you know that this disease does not discriminate. Nobody gives a damn about your bank statement, your socioeconomics, race, gender, anything. This disease does not discriminate. And so there I was, a psychologist, you know, and I had 
um, eventually fast forwarding here, I, I had sessions and in between, and I also taught at a local college and, and I would have Skittles and candies and milk duds and things in my pockets, my little bit of heroin, but it was legal, right? It's nothing illegal about it. There's still people, there's people on this line that are still drunk. Now, I do not stand in judgment of you. I'm one of you, but I know you're drunk because, because I was too, you know? And, and, and the fact that you're eating, even if you've been around forever, you know, doesn't make you a bad person. You have nothing to be ashamed about, nothing. Just a recognition that there are people um, that come into 12-step programs, be it Alcoholics Anonymous, Overreaders Anonymous, that are still drunk. The only difference is in AA, which I also attend, um, and we, we maintain singleness of purpose here, but, um, you know, if someone's drunk, you'll smell it on their breath. Uh, they'll probably have D DUIs, driving under the influence. They'll slur their speech. I never slurred my speech, right? But I had my heroin foods. I wanted what you had if you were thin, but I continued to eat and I wanted a pixie dust-like recovery. I expected that if I, if I put in enough time in this thing, that I would get this pixie dust magical recovery. And I, I will assure you based on my own bitter experience, that's not coming, it ain't coming. Sorry, you have to take action. You have to first put down the food. And that sucks, excuse my French, that sucks putting down the food. There is nothing worse than being in Overeaters Anonymous and still, and, and have a white knuckled abstinence. There's nothing worse than that. There's nothing worse than continuing to eat in the misery while you're in the rooms. I pretended, I acted as if, and I kept eating. I didn't have a notion of entire abstinence. I thought the people that talked about entire abstinence, they're nutcases. There's nobody that are, but, but the best you could get is maybe part mostly abstinent, mostly working the steps. You know, and, 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 and so I continue to follow the herd. You know, I continue, continue to follow the herd and, and I continue to remain drunk on my heroin foods. And if that hits you between the eyes, I'm sorry. I don't mean to, it's not, it's not coming from a place of lacking compassion or judgment or anything. It's, that was me in Overeaters Anonymous for, for probably five years. And I know people that have spent much longer they had not conceded, I had not conceded to my innermost self that I was alcoholic. You know how you'll know if someone conceded, taking step one? They put the food down, 100%, right? They put the food down 100%. And then you are gonna feel better when you put the food down. You're gonna feel anger better. You're gonna feel fear better. You're gonna feel like punching someone in the nose better right? You're going to feel jealousy better. You've, some of you've heard other people, my sponsor, well, my sponsor says those things and he, he stole everything just like I did, right? There's no creative new thoughts here. There's just different personalities, right? It's all stolen. See, plagiarism and stealing in Overeaters Anonymous is not only legal, it's encouraged. So you will, when you put the food down in an unrecovered state, you will feel frustration physical and emotional suffering better because you won't have, you won't be anesthetized or numbed out. I'm just going to give it to you straight. I'm not going to lie to you. 
you're gonna feel horrible. That's why we work the steps like our hair is on fire. That's why. Five wow. minutes left. Five minutes, wow, did I go that fast? Okay, shut up, Larry. Uh, that's why uh, people will stick around in Overeaters Anonymous in their misery, not put the food down entirely. They're afraid what their life's gonna become like. How in the world, Larry, wait a minute. You tell me that I'm powerless over food and I know my life's unmanageable and now you're telling me to put the food down, which is it? Am I powerless or not? Yes, indeed, you are powerless. God's not gonna put the food down. Your higher power is not gonna put the food down for you. You put it down. Okay, it's the great paradox. You put it down, that's the surrender. You're gonna go through some suffering and that I would encourage you to get a Sherpa. Don't get a Sherpa that hasn't climbed and stumbled up the mountain before. Don't get a Sherpa that becomes your higher power that is someone else that's still drunk. However wonderful that friendship is, get a Sherpa, we call it a sponsor, right? Get a Sherpa who has stumbled up the pathway and continues to trudge up the pathway abstinently changing through this, not someone that just knows the, the big book or knows the literature, Don't, that, that person can't help you. As wonderful and beautiful and compassionate as that person is, they will never help you. I will end, well, not just, but I'll, I'll tell you in the big book, this is what got me well. It's a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And some of you know it. Um, it just is like, it's just what got me well. You are not gonna get recover on, you're not gonna recover on fellowship alone. I hate to break it to you. You're not gonna recover on fellowship alone. Yes, fellowship is beautiful and lovely and necessary. Yes, the tools are beautiful and lovely and necessary, but none of those will get you in a recovered state of being. You know why? You wanna know? Here's why. They were never intended by the founders to get you recovered. This, the 12 steps, immersed in the 12 steps were intended to enable you to have a transformation, a personality change, a spiritual awakening so that you can be abstinent peacefully in the midst of turmoil like we're going through now, right? And yes, we need a sponsor and we need the fellowship. The tools and the fellowship were designed with a very specific purpose. I'll tell you what that is. Roseanne would have told you the same. Bill and Bob would have told you the same. The tools and the fellowship were designed to provide you love and support while you work the practical program of action. The tools were never designed to enable you to effectuate a spiritual transformation. The fellowship was never designed to effectuate or bring about a spiritual transformation. The 12 steps were practiced precisely. There's, uh, there's four barriers to having a spiritual awakening. Maybe you've heard of these, four, four things that get in the way. Number one is a, a secret you will not tell. I told most of my secrets, but I didn't tell them all. I wasn't vulnerable enough to tell. There was a secret you will not tell. The second barrier of having an effective spiritual awakening is a resentment you will not let go of. I'll be damned if I let go of that resentment, a resentment you won't let go of. The third one is a vicarious thrill, a thrill, a, a thrill that you will not put down. 
manipulation, dishonesty, eating still. It's a thrill. It just gives me a thrill. I get an anticipatory thrill. It's a vicarious thrill I will not put down. And then finally, the fourth barrier is an amend I will not make. An amend I will not make. That's built into the steps, those four barriers to recovery. If you work the steps to the best of your human ability, you will have a transformation. Rarely have I seen a person fail. In fact, I've never seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed the path. We have to trust the process. We have to trust the, the spiritual process. And then you can have a transformation that is effective. It's sustainable. Today, uh, the last I'll say, today uh, I am abstinent peacefully in the midst of calamity. My mother has cancer. COVID is still around. Um, people get sick, people die, but I am still peaceful in my sobriety as a result of having a spiritual transformation from these steps. And that's available to anyone, anyone at all, anyone at all at any point, if you're willing to put the food down and work the steps. So anyways, I've gone, probably gone over and I, I thank you so much, Rita, uh, uh, for um, inviting me. With that, I pass, thanks. Larry, thank you so much. That was wonderful. I'll just stop the recording.